You're listening to Inside the Outdoors, presented by People for Bikes and the Outdoor Industry Association, where we discuss the latest market trends in outdoor recreation. And now, here are your hosts, Kelly Davis and Patrick Hogan. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Inside the Outdoors. I'm your host, Patrick Hogan. In this episode, Kelly and I work to reconcile the outdoor recreation community's desire to open up outdoor recreation activities to new participants with our collective efforts to mitigate congestion of people using a natural resource. We'll look to the snow sports industry for some lessons learned and discuss the role that information and apps play in getting participants dispersed across space to avoid overcrowding. Let's get into it. Hey, Patrick, what's going on? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Why yeah. are you up so why are you up so early? Why? I usually work seven to three, but I um I I like take the first hour to ease into work. And, yeah. Uh, and then everyone the rest of the office wakes up, gets on at about nine, and so then it really starts. But then, you know, like I, I think we've talked about this before, then I can go out for a bike ride afterwards. Cause there's still sunlight out, like especially in the later in the the dark times, the winter months. Like getting out for that last little bit of sunlight helps no doubt. my sanity. Well, the, sh- the shortest day of the year is December 21st, right? I think I'm right about that. Sounds right. Um, <laughs> so as I get that, you know, we, we're just, once we're on the other side of that, I feel better. Yeah. Well, plus, yeah. you know, my local, my local ski area opens on December 19th. So <laughs> Keystone <laughs> opened um, last week, week before, something like that. A base, well, A basin's always first, right? They, it's a, it's a thing for them. They actually had snow this year when they opened. It wasn't yeah. just a white ribbon of death. I said that their party looked super fun this year. Yeah. Um. Th- so, so maybe we can talk about A basin another time. They're an interesting case study for, um, like at ease of access and kind of like curating the experience you want for your outdoor participants because they got off of the Epic Pass. And if you want to go ski a basin, you just have to buy an a basin season pass or ticket or whatever there's, and they've jacked the prices up considerably. And so that, that sort of signals to folks like, okay, well maybe I'll just go to Breckenridge or Keystone or Coppers, kind of like a less expensive mountain. But that means when you do go to a basin, it's amazing. It's not overcrowded. It's not like little kids everywhere, like cutting you off and everything. It's they, they landed where they wanted to be. They, they just jacked their prices up. They quit giving discounts to other, um, you know, like whatever discounts in the right term. They they quit packaging themselves in with other resorts so that it was easy to access their their trails. It was um, it was neat. I think I, I don't know how anyone else feels, but for my uh, economist self, I kind of dig that. Huh. Well, I think they zigged when the when the rest of the ski world was zagging and said we're not going to do this last <laughs> thing. But as first of all, it was jamming them up on the weekends and and. Yeah and pissing off their core customers. And so they made a decision, we're going to be Colorado's local mountain. And the interesting thing, one of the things I love about A-Basin, first of all, is it's the oldest ski resort in America. Is it? I didn't know that. Yes, it is. Did you say oldest or coldest? Because it could be both. It's cold as fuck up there. I think think Big Sky's the coldest fan. (laughs) Yeah, that that makes sense. I don't know. It's it's the coldest I've been to above the tree line where the wind just destroys you. Oh, yeah. It'll it'll exfoliate you (laughs) you wear your skin showing. Sandblasted, yeah. (laughs) I kind of, you know, I always look about 10 years younger during ski season. (laughs) Back back east here, it's the snow guns, man. They'll just rip your freaking face off. 
There's one, there's one set of snow guns that I, that I have to go through to get off the mountain at, at my home mountain. Mm-hmm. And if it's, if it's cold enough, you can pull a mask off of your face, of your oh, face at the yeah. bottom of the mountain. <laughs> yeah, that's not, that's not that cool. But A-Basin, it's going to be interesting to see how this works out. I think it's going to work out for them. But, you know, there's a lot of discussion about season pass. Um, yeah. in, in snow. And, you know, one of my big questions is you mentioned the, the high price of walk-up tickets, a uh, walk-up at Deer Valley on a Thursday this year is 215 bucks. God almighty. Yeah. On a Thursday, like, so weekdays, yeah. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is two, weekends are about 270. So my question is, if that's all incentivizing people to do seasons pass, what do you do about beginners? What do you do about the people that that would have like paid, you know, 120 bucks for a package and come and learn how to at least try to to figure out how to ski or snowboard? But really, you can't do that in a day. Right. So mm-hmm. it's it's going to cost the average person probably, you know, twelve hundred bucks just to get their first taste of skiing or snowboarding unless they're going with their friends of the backcountry, which is, you know, that because that's an option. But traditionally, that's not how we build participation in snow sports. No, and that's so intimidating, too, because if something goes wrong in the backcountry, it's not there's not like ski patrol everywhere like there is on on the bunny slopes, on the greens and blues. The worst um, boyfriend snowboard lesson ever, Lynn's in an avalanche. I mean, no thanks, man. Yeah. I'm writing my the oh, fall cool. state of the market where I'm, you know, this is when... We have to start talking about what's going to happen this winter. And the season pass issue is, you know, I don't know if it's an issue. It just is happening. And it's interesting to watch how how it how dynamic the snow sports market is because of it. And I'm talking about the way people are consuming snow sports and the way they're being incentivized to consume snow sports. Yeah. So the the industry is incentivizing season pass sales. I mean, across the board, whether it's an icon pass or an epic pass or uh, even a you know an indie pass, um, the idea is that people are in, are investing up front in in their winter recreation. And the nice thing mm-hmm. about that for resorts, and I, if I were at a resort, I I would say this is the most genius thing we ever did. It transferred the risk from from the ski resorts to the consumer, and that risk the risk of having a bad season. So it used to be oh, that I the see. resorts would sit around and wring their hands right around now and wonder, you know, when is the snow going to start to fall or will it continue to fall? Or, you know, what are we going to have to do in terms of utilizing resources to make sure we have snow on the slopes this year? When you sell season passes, you transfer all that risk on the, onto the consumer. So now it's the yeah. consumer who's now spent $1,000 on a pass that's sitting around wringing their hands going, I hope it's a good snow year because there's no guarantee. You know, you buy your pass, you take your chances. Yeah. I so, bought a pass last year. I went zero times. Oh my god! But I, I had a I had a new baby. It was it was a, okay, and it was a discounted pass, and so it wasn't that big of an investment. But still, yeah, that's that's an interesting way to look at it. Like it, it's shifting that risk. And if I'm trying to make the business case, if I'm working for the resort, absolutely, that's what I want to prioritize. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I don't necessarily I don't love walk ups. I don't love them because I don't know how to how to unless I unless I depend on data that's projected on similar days, you know, mm-hmm. I, there's surprises in store for me sometimes, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's especially, you know, you know, you know, it's going to be packed on a powder day and you know that you have to, you have to try and anticipate that. But, you know, the, the season pass makes it oh so easy to predict what's, how many people are going to come, what they're going to do. You can watch their patterns. I mean, yeah. it, 
the Epic Passes RFID enabled, so you can see what they're doing all over the mountain. I know. Isn't if they that cool? if they download if they download the app, goodness, you know, you can yeah. basically just ski or snowboard with them. Like, <laughs> you're gonna know when they're hungry. We're gonna get to the place though at at a at a Vail resort, and I'm not completely against this, where they're gonna know when to send me a picture of a burger. I'd be like, yeah, man. Yeah, I want that That's too funny. You mentioned this in relation to our expectation of crowding on a given day. When I was writing during COVID, um, you had to reserve, you had to like go in and select the day you wanted to go ride before. I I don't know if you could do it day of, maybe you could, but I'd be texting my buddies and I'd say, hey, you want to go ride next week? And then we'd all decide on the day and the time and where we're going to meet. And then we'd have to lock into our account and say, Hey, we want to go to this resort on this day. There's there's a party of four or something, and um, get yourself a slot to be on the mountain so that there wasn't overcrowding when we were masked up and there were COVID concerns and everything. But I think that the topic of reserving space with outdoor recreation is a touchy topic. I know the national parks have started to do that, and there's mixed feelings on that. But um, I think there's costs and benefits associated with it. What are your yeah. thoughts? Go. I think so too. Um, I don't think they're going to do that other than maybe for parking, which is always going to be, you know, a, a situation of scarcity at many resorts on the, particularly on weekends. Yeah. It, it, it was a different experience during COVID, wasn't it? I didn't, yeah. I didn't honestly did not love skiing and, and riding during COVID. And the, the reason is this, I like the entire experience, Patrick, the entire experience. I like, yeah. look, I'm a I'm a first tracks girl. I mean, I worked as a, I worked, <laughs> yeah. I worked as a snow reporter for minimum wage, right? Just yeah. to get first tracks on the mountain. And um, you know, I'm looking forward to you know being able to operate in my favorite little pub at the base and not having to mm-hmm. worry or make reservations for that. I'm looking forward to being able to boot up somewhere other than you know the back seat of my car. That'd be nice. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm looking forward to all of those things. The fact is, at, you know, my resort, my home resort is owned by Vale. Um, and that doesn't, that doesn't seem to make that much difference. We're going to be super crowded on weekends, no matter what. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, w- I would appreciate if they would limit the crowd on weekends, but I'll tell you what, I, I don't, to a certain point, I don't care. I want as many people to enjoy the mountain as that as possible. Yeah, totally. I'm not going to be there. <laughs> yeah, I, for sure. I I'm not left at like 10 o'clock that morning before DC shows up to my ski resort. Yeah. The, the DC metropolitan area personified. That's what I'm talking about. But yeah, I, I, I think the, the season pass has changed snow sports in, in a really fundamental way in terms of risk. And I also think that it's, it's changed it in terms of the way people are consuming snow sports. And it gets really interesting if we applied this to other places in outdoor. Um, I'm not sure it's completely applicable, but we're seeing all these sort of fun parks getting built all over the U S that include things like surfing and ropes courses. And maybe, you know, there are going to be some bike courses there that Mm -hmm. I can see that becoming a thing. And, you know, what do you do when it gets overcrowded? What do you do? I mean, is is it the resorts just trying to make as much money as they can and not caring about the experience of their guest, or is it a, is it you know allowing people people to access that particular venue? And it's it's hard to it's hard to choose. And I guess it's a good problem to be overcrowded. At least we're not yeah, sitting here talking well, about. Well, you know what we need to do is just allow people to do it for free for the first five years. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that trying to reconcile overcrowding with ease of access and, and reducing barriers to access is, is a tough balance. Um, if we look at national parks, the national parks are typically more accessible than a lot of other outdoor rec activities because they're designed like by design, they're just more accessible. Right. But then you get places like arches or something that's just like overrun with people. And then yeah. at, at a certain point, you risk the deterioration of the natural resource itself because of the overcrowding and, and sort of like the infrastructure that needs to be built up to support these huge crowds that want to come through. This I is if, too big of a philosophical question, but like, how do, how do we, how do we reconcile that? Go ahead. I was just thinking it you know, the mathematician and I, in me popped up and I thought, well, you know, where, I think we could probably run some kind of an algorithm that shows us where the point of diminishing returns might be. Yeah, so, all right, but it, it would have to be, we would have to choose a specific community. So actually, we let's go back to ski resorts for a second. We could probably run a capacity study at, a, at resort by resort to find out at what point diminishing returns started to occur in the crowd yeah, <laughs> and yeah. discount. And and we could probably, I mean, a study like that, we, could, we would probably have to fan I know various researchers out across the, the resort for a couple of days and look for, I would look for patterns in vernacular on the lift. On the <laughs> like, lift. On the lift. Like, you, you know, yeah. you just write up with it with random people, right? Just write, maybe write up once every 10 chairs and uh, put a research. What a fun intercept survey. Chairs. They can't get away from you, right? They're they on the chair with you. <laughs> captive, captive audience. <laughs> and, and start to look for words like just words that are, that connote anger, frustration, um, yeah. or, or just are generally a way of communicating that I am having a bad time because there are too many people here, which in my case would be like all the time. <laughs> yeah. You find those words emanating from me. 24 seven, but I think it would be interesting to do. And I bet, I bet that if, if we ran four or five of those studies, we would be able to identify exactly what, what um, metrics to use to identify that mm -hmm. point of diminishing, diminishing returns um, for every single place we went. And I, and honestly, it's not, it's not such a bad idea because at what point, even in national parks, do you let so many people in that they're destroying the environment? Yeah. I mean, keep it, keep in mind that human poo is now a problem in national parks. And at what point does does the the number of people start to actually um, diminish the experience for for other people that are there? Or the other folks, is, yeah. So we saw some of this early in the pandemic, or maybe like mid pandemic, whatever, like overcrowding at trailheads for some of those like walk out the door activities, like hiking. Does OIA have any research on like how that might have changed over the last year and a half or two years? as we've sort of like eased out of stay at home orders and mask protocols and all that stuff. Hey, we've got our, we've got participation data, but what yeah. the participation data is telling us is that the 9 million people that started hiking during the pandemic are still hiking. Anecdotally information <laughs> I have from national parks and, and really others um, around the community is that the trailheads are not crowded like they were in March and April of 2020. That that was that was a bit of an anomaly. I thought I would see that clearly in the data when I opened it up this year, but there are two million more hikers. Right? They didn't. It didn't. They didn't stop. The number of times this is this is sort of interesting. The number of times people are hiking, the number of times people are are participating in anything is actually mm -hmm. going down. I think we've gone from about 
an average of around 90 in the late 90s. Now we're at an average of about 71 outdoor outings per outdoor participant. So if you're hiking, that means oh, that you're you know you're getting outside about 71 days. And the, the it's that's been that that decline has been going on for more than a decade. And we got a little blip in 21. Like we got overall, um, the average number of outings went up by about four. But but in the 16 to, uh, I guess it's 13 to 17 age groups and 18 to 24, um, the number of addicts continued to go down. So young people are, the the number of times young people are getting outside continues to decline and decline and decline. Old people like me are the ones (laughs) that drove it up in 21. We'll see if that trend continues. But yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. So is there a trail crowding problem? In some areas there, there definitely is. Um, is there an overcrowding problem in, in some national parks? Yeah, there absolutely is. And so, you know, we've been talking about things like dispersing, dispersing yeah. our participants. And most participation takes place locally. The data also told us that. I mean, the your, your local parks, your local playgrounds are the most popular spaces where people enjoy outdoor recreation. It sounds it sounds so you know quaint, right? It's true though. <laughs> yeah, uh, only totally. only about sixty seven percent of Americans are well. About I got to reverse that. Sorry, thirty three percent of Americans go to a national park once a year. That's hmm. it. So you know we're going to start talking about this. You know how do you disperse crowds that that come together in iconic places? And this is the same problem snows having. Same problem national parks are having. You know, how do we disperse outdoor participants more? And part of it is, you know, have them do more things over and and get to know their local trails, their local yeah. green spaces. And um, we'll see. We'll see how this works. There there may be other ways, including reservation systems. You know, yeah. it, it gets more draconian the worse the problem gets, right? The solution becomes more draconian every step you take down that road. You have to yeah. pay more. You'll have to get a reservation. You can't park here. So, so I'm going to ask you in a second what levers we have to pull to help that disbursement process, but I'm going to give you my answer first. And that's, that's education, right? Like we've seen that across outdoor rec activities. If you just help folks understand what they have access to and like what they might be able to expect when they get there, um, pictures, stories, whatever, like easy to access resources, um, at city facilities or online or whatever, getting information out so that you know, some folks might not even know that they have hiking trails within, you know, a, a short drive from their home. That information helps folks feel comfortable and confident accessing those resources. They know what to expect when they get there. And then we're not all going to the same doggone <laughs> trailhead that's like, you know, the one everyone knows about. And all of a sudden it's overrun with cars and we're parking along the street and everything. But that education component and that um, awareness, I think, is is key to actually making the disbursement happen. I, I couldn't agree with you more. What what role do apps play, especially in bike? Yeah, I think apps play a, a key role here. You know, uh, People for Bikes has an app called RideSpot, which um, really tries to accomplish this. And we stitch together what we call ride stories. And it's like pictures and descriptions. Hey, we took this ride and there's this beautiful um, paved trail with this like mural that goes down. Um, 
that's my my ride to the grocery store. It's this beautiful mural, and and just sort of bringing that information out to the audience that that's like looking for places near them to ride. You can see like, okay, yes, it's a pretty easy ride. It looks like it's all paved. It's fairly you know wide trails, so I don't have to worry about collisions or anything or um, not being able to ride the way I want to ride uh, if I'm if I'm being blocked or something like that. Um, I think apps are huge. You know, like I can go on to ride spot i can go on to strava i can go on to map my ride and see what other riders are doing around me and go oh man i never thought about that what if i like loop this trail into this trail and i can turn my 40 mile loop into a 60 mile loop or something having all that information at our fingertips is huge it is it and you know what it makes me feel more confident when i'm on trail because i know exactly where i am i know what to expect i know how many other riders i can expect to see so you know when i inevitably crash (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah. well, what, you know, the talk about dispersing um, participants across trails before trail apps were a thing. Um, this trail system, my home trail system was kind of super local because mm-hmm. there was, we, we were actually pretty careful not to let any maps of it get out, partly because some, it's on DNR land and there's only one official trail. And when they found you, you know, maybe finding new places to ride or hike or do whatever you do in the woods, they got a little bit upset about that. So, you know, we, we kind of kept things on the DL when we were, we were looking at maybe, you know, adding a feature to a trail or just, just cutting a little bit of a new trail or yeah. even some of the trails that, that existed before that were never mapped that only yeah. we knew about it was awesome and i loved it very much <laughs> but it is good to have other people on trail now yeah let's talk about how apps and and we can work to better educate the public about this whose role is it to educate the public because they used to go to this is one of the arguments retail used to make for this is why you need specialty retail because mm-hmm. we're the place everybody goes to get information yeah and learn and figure out what's going on in the local area. And my other sort of answer to that would be anytime we do research and we try to ask, what do you need in order to participate more, more frequently, whatever it is, it's always one of the top two or three answers is like an invitation from a friend or a family member. So if you're a participant, if you ride and you have an app you like and you use it to find trails, introduce your friends to it so they can they can use it for the same sort of information gathering. Yeah. And I would pile on, but that's a less helpful answer, but yeah, I think that's a helpful answer. I think that's a helpful answer. Most participation in outdoor again, takes place at local parks and local playgrounds Yeah, and, you know, in spaces that are accessible from the home. Mm -hmm. So, you know, specialty retail still plays a role there because, you know, people can go to outdoor specialty retail or outdoor specialty bike shop in their, in their community and find out a little bit more about whether there are apps that will help them discover new areas, you know, maybe have a discussion about where the best areas to participate, whether you're riding or hiking or unicycling for God's sakes. You know, there are people that you can, that you can actually talk to not only about, you know, the gear, but about where you participate, how you participate, you know, some of the cool trails that everybody's going to, what apps is everybody's using. So yeah, that's, there's still a huge role for specialty retailers in in communities to educate the the community about where they can recreate. Yeah. I love that. that. That's exactly right. I mean, when I think of my local shops, I think of like they're staffed by the people who are the most avid, most experienced, spend the most days on the mountain probably or the most days on in the saddle, whatever it is. 
that person's got really useful feedback and plug it into that resource. Or, you know, if you're someone in the industry kind of above that resource, just empowering that dealer to be that sort of community builder is huge. Yeah, no doubt. But, you know, I'll still go to the shop and and talk. <laughs> you know, yeah. sometimes I'll just, I'll just take the dog and just drop by the outdoor shop. Just pop in. Right there on Market Street. just And just, you know, just chat. See what's going on. See how they're doing. Yeah. See what's new. You know, <laughs> what's everybody talking about? I want, I want to get the tea. I want the outdoor tea. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Kind of want to end it on the, the education note. Get to know your community. Whether, you, whether you're just out there hiking or biking. And if you're in the outdoor industry, you know, one of the most... One of the most interesting things you can do to learn about what people know about trails, what people know about about the routes they ride or what alternatives they have or what resources are available. Yeah, get out in your community and find out. That's I mean, just bottom line, wherever you are in the industry, it's you know, it's important to keep asking these questions and to keep looking mm-hmm. for solutions. And in this case, I think a lot of the solutions are community based. We can educate people in our communities about what's available in a, in a variety of ways, whether it's, you know, through the specialty retail channel or, you know, through apps or through community groups. I mean, there's still ski clubs out yeah. there. There's still hiking clubs out there. I used to be a hash house Harrier and a hash name and everything. <laughs> Super cool. So, yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of ways to, for us to and it's and it's not just a, you know, build it and they will come. Mm-hmm. You've got to push that information out from all those channels. Yeah. Yeah. My hash name was Axe. Actually, it was Kiss My Axiom. There's a whole process to the naming. We'll talk about that some other time. (laughs) That's for another episode. Yeah. It did involve drinking beer out of my shoe. So. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to Inside the Outdoors, presented by People for Bikes and the Outdoor Industry Association. We'll see you next time.